diving in, uh, if you have your hard copy Bibles, if you're not a digital person, begin now to furiously look for the book of Micah. Uh, because it's in there. Um, you have to find it. Some of you are like, well, I can just dial it up. Good for you. But for those of you that are, are, are old school, you're going to have to start paging because it's in there. I want to acknowledge in advance the wide-ranging number of things we're going to talk about in the next 35 minutes. Zion asked me Thursday, he's like, so what are you preaching on? And I said, everything. It's like, what do you mean everything? It's like, well, I just, it's everything. I felt better, though, because I realized that when Albert Einstein came to the edge of his life, or the end of his life, he was working on something called the theory of everything. So I think maybe we're solving it this morning. I don't know. Maybe Einstein didn't put it together, but in this message, perhaps we'll touch everything. Last week, we talked about our Christian faith and how it's layered on top of the Jewish experience and how that experience is projected into our future. God's people, their narrative, their promise, it's what our faith is built on and it is what our future is affected by. Now, we haven't touched this a whole lot as we've been talking about Israel, but as this age transitions into the next, anti-Semitism or hatred for the Jewish people will increase, not only among the lost, but also among some who would say they love Jesus, but have some second thoughts about what God thinks about his people. Here is your takeaway, okay? If you get to the end of this, this is your, your cheat code. When you get to dinner and we say, what do we, ta- what do we talk about? This is what I really want you to hear. We're going to talk about a lot of things to get there, but this is what I want you to hear. Shakings are coming. They're coming. And that's not even a prophetic word, although there's a prophetic edge on it. It's biblical. Shakings are coming. And if we are not prepared for them, our response for them will be things we couldn't possibly imagine. The struggle for us at the transition of the ages will be external, things that happen to us, but also internal in the way of our heart. And some of us will suffer and endure. And others will suffer and surrender. And some will suffer and be martyred. But most who fall away will do so because they lost their heart somewhere along the way. Matthew 24 describes a season of when lawlessness will increase. That word lawlessness there, what it's talking about, it carries with it uh, the idea of deliberately disobeying a specific standard. The idea that, okay, there's an agreed upon rule here and I'm not obeying it. We are seeing a spirit of lawlessness spring up in our culture and in some of our cities where literally people are going, that's wrong, I'm doing it anyway. City of San Francisco, they, the police won't even come if you're stealing less than $1,000 worth of material. So when people walk into stores, this was on record recently, entire families walking on stealing binges, going into a store, just, hey, careful kids, don't take more than $1,000 because the police won't come, and carrying stuff out as the shop owner stands there. It's a spirit of lawlessness And it's not going to be limited to San Francisco. The Bible says that spirit of lawlessness will increase. And when that happens, the love of many will grow cold. Not not a few. Yeah, a few dropped off when lawlessness came along. No, no. The The love of many will grow cold. And if that sounds ridiculous or impossible to you, that maybe you or people that you know would would lose your sense of love for your fellow man or even for God's people, then 
are we in any way spiritually or genetically superior to those that sat in the pews of the German church in the 1940s? Who sang hymns on Sunday and persecuted Jews on Monday. We are not, which means we've got to guard our heart and be very aware of our own feelings, which will often drift towards the negative, especially towards the people that God identified as his chosen ones. I want to love what God loves and hate what God hates. I don't even have to understand why he loves it. I just want to identify with that. Now, how many of you would say in the last five years you went through an unforeseen change? Something, something changed for you, you just didn't see coming. I mean, yeah, almost everybody. Might have been huge, might have been small, but we, we know, looking around, change is a constant and somehow we're still all surprised by it. Even though we know it's coming, we would know that when we asked that question, everybody would raise their hand, yet we're surprised when it happens. It's not just history, it's actually a pattern for the future, because in the middle of everything changing, God does not. And the best indicator of his future behavior and our expectations are his past behavior. And God manages to be the one thing that none of us can be, which is completely consistent. So we talked last week about Moses' achievements and how Jesus, as the greater Moses, eclipsed them. Today we're going to talk about something that God has yet to do that will be based on the pattern of how he dealt with the Jews in the past, but will far and away exceed it. God is the most intentional being in the universe. Everything he does, he does for a purpose. He doesn't waste a moment, a motion, or a word. Even the seasons that we don't understand, he is in the process of leveraging for what he wants to come to pass. And this morning, we're going to talk about a little bit further down the plan that Jesus has and how it is foreshadowed in the literature and the story of his people, the Jews. Okay, how many of you with a physical Bible actually found Micah? Anybody actually give up? It's small. Okay, there's a reason. We're, we're reading out of Micah here for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, we're real big on Bible literacy. One of the reasons we struggle with reading our Bible is we don't know what we're looking at. You ever like, I don't know the story, the beginning and the end, and how does this all fit in? And as much as I am a, a fan of wanting to know what the now word of the Lord is, I also want to know what the whole word of the Lord is so that when I am struggling, I can find answers for myself. So in appreciation of Bible literacy here, why don't we know anything about Micah? Like, why do most of you, to be honest, if I were to say, can you stand up and give me a five-sentence summary of Micah, you would get very nervous. Like, you could speak about five, for five minutes on your favorite movie or, you know, what you have for dinner, but Micah, oh, why don't we know as much about Micah as we should? In fact, some of the passages that you're even familiar with in Micah, you don't realize are Micah. How would you like to be Micah going, I wrote that. Like, I wrote that. And you don't even know that I wrote that. Micah is quoted twice in the New Testament. Once in Matthew 2, when Herod asks the chief priests, if there was to be a Messiah, where would I find such Messiah? Where would he be born? In Matthew 2, 5 and 6, the religious leaders quote Micah. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Somewhere in the great beyond, Mike is going, that was mine, that was mine. 
I said that, I said that, and now they're saying it. The other time it is quoted is in Matthew 10 and in Luke 12, which both record the same thing of Jesus saying, uh, Luke 12, 53, they will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What he is referencing here, that is a callback to Micah 7, 6, where Micah writes, For sons treats the father with contemptuously, daughter rises against your mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his old household. Jesus quotes Micah, who was speaking under the the, uh, authority of the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, Jesus quotes Micah, quoting the Holy Spirit. I told you he was consistent. But before I read the passage from Micah that we're going to read, that was going to launch us into the morning... Let me tell you why we really don't know much about Micah and why we haven't, haven't really uh, dove into it that much. First of all, it's small. Those of you who found it in the physical Bible, you, you realize it's, you know, it's seven chapters. It's only about 2,000 words. Jeremiah is 33,000 words. So comparatively, very, very tiny. And you can say, well, we know about Joel, and Joel is shorter than that. And that's true, but Joel talks about a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As charismatics, we always drift to the parts of Scripture that support what we want. Acts, Joel, we're done. Okay? So why don't we know about Micah? The big reason we don't have an appreciation or a working understanding of Micah as a church largely is this. It's timing. It's timing. Some of you remember getting that 21-inch bike for Christmas when you were a kid. Remember? You got that bike, had the ape hanger handlebars and the banana seat and the shift lever, like that you didn't know what to do with. And you had that bike, you were so excited, you couldn't wait for the first day when you could go out ride your brand new 21-inch bike that you got for Christmas. And as soon as the snow melted, you went out and you rode that thing down the street. You hoped that all your friends saw you and you turned around in front of your friend's house so they could look out the window and see you. And then you saw them in the driveway and they had a 24-inch bike with a banana seat and you had a 21-inch. You kind of went, wah, 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 wah. Like, in comparison, your bike just, you know, at the same time, it was cool until a minute ago. Here, it's, with Micah, it's timing. Micah is the 21-inch bike of the Old Testament prophecy. Because it's written the same time as the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, with these incredible details, 60-some chapters, and then you hold it up to Micah, and you're like, well, if I'm going to read about it, and you go to Isaiah. We've tended to navigate more towards Isaiah. By comparison, Micah just has seven chapters. Is he a prophet? Yes. But it's a little bit like, okay, Joel's here. Joel's got 19 titles on Amazon. I counted. I have two. If you came to the bridge looking for an author, you'd probably look for Joel, okay? It's just a matter of timing and of volume. We're more familiar with Isaiah than we are with Micah. That said, Micah wrote some powerful things for the future. He spoke eloquently of the character of God, the condition of God, God's people's heart, and with 2020 vision about things that were yet to happen, some which have yet come to come to pass. Micah, the Jewish prophet, wrote about things that will be experienced both by God's people, the Jews, and God's people, the Gentiles, who became believers. Now, here's the overview, so you can kind of put Micah in, in a little bit of a box, so next time Micah comes up, you can say, well, actually, and you can explain to somebody you know a little bit about Micah. Chapters 1 and 2, here's an overview real quick. He talks about accusations and warnings to the two kingdoms, tells them where they are falling short, and tells them, if you don't get your ducks in a row, Assyrians and the Babylons are coming for you. 
And that's actually true. Chapters 3 and 4, he talks about grave injustice in Israel, but he gives them hope. The first seven verses of chapter 4 talk about a time when heaven and earth become one. And in Micah 4.4, he says, They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. You know who loved that phrase? George Washington. George Washington used that in his writings 50 different times. He actually used it once writing to a Hebrew congregation. He said, one day we will all sit under our own vine or fig tree and none will make us afraid. Quoted their prophet to them. It was so much a part of Washington's speech in his vernacular that when Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote Hamilton, he wrote that phrase into Washington's uh, farewell address. Interestingly, it's not really in there, but, but it was something that was so common to his speech patterns that he just threw it in there. It's believable. Everyone shall sit under their own vine or fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. That's not the work of a playwright about retirement. It's not the work about George Washington who is going back to Mount Vernon. It is the work of the Holy Spirit through the prophet Micah, and it's referring to the day when heaven and earth comes to dwell together and man lives there in Jerusalem and everyone will sit under their own vine or fig tree and you'll have no reason to fear anymore. It's more than poetry. It's a promise. And perhaps one that we don't appreciate as much as perhaps the rest of the world where they don't own anything and they've never known peace. Most of you today will go home and sit under your own vine, or the bank's vine, but they let you live there. It's not really your vine. And you will have a moment of peace until all chaos breaks out on Monday morning. But most of the world doesn't even have that. And so the promise to them is this idea of a home and a place where you can be at peace. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 then talk about more about mercy and hope, including the one part of Micah that you might know, which is Micah 6, 8, that says, He has told you, O man, what is good. In other words, I've already told you about this. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, which isn't just being kind, but it's actually proactive justice, and to walk humbly with your God. And he's not saying it to make the world a better place which it would, he's saying it so that you are fit for the world to come. That those who fit in the world to come will be people who have done this. That's Micah in a nutshell. Let's go home. Just kidding. No. I just told you all that to tell you that the promises of Micah lay largely unfulfilled yet. And while there might have been shadows of what he said that have come to pass, the bulk of what he describes has not happened, which means you and I need to make some decisions, okay? You ever use a decision tree to help make decisions? Okay, here's our decision tree, a yes-no logic tree. First question, is Micah scripture ordained by God? Are we going to land on this? Yes, okay, so we're there. So if yes, there's another question. Has all of it come to pass yet? No. So if the first question is yes and the second one is no, what do we know? Some of you are like, I didn't know there was going to be math. Um, If we know it's God's word and it hasn't come to pass yet, it's coming. Thank you, Ted. It's coming. 
There are parts of Micah that we have not seen yet. Take that idea from Micah 7.15, this thing that he says about what is yet to come. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. Take that idea that in the days to come, he's going to bring people out like he did during the Exodus. Hold it up to the idea that Jesus is the greater Moses. And you begin to see that the exodus of the people of Israel is not just history. It is a picture of how God deals with people through trials and that Jew and Gentile will be led into the next age by the greater Moses, Jesus. We read the book of Exodus as if it's just story time with Moses. It's actually also game time plan with Jesus. It's both. If Jesus is the greater Moses and if Jesus recognized this portion of Micah as the future and if Micah said, as in when you came out of Egypt, I will bring you out and show you marvelous things, then we know this, deliverance is coming, but it's coming in the context of trouble. Deliverance is coming, but it's coming in the context of trouble. The Bible describes a season in the future Perhaps our future, surely the future of our descendants. And the scripture uses a quizzical phrase. The phrase, the great and terrible, or the great and awesome, or fearful day. We find it all through scripture. Joel 2.11 says, the great day of the Lord is great and terrible, or awesome. Like, is it great or is it terrible? It's actually used in conjunction with some of our favorite verses. One of our favorite verses is Malachi 5 or 4, 6. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. We love that. We've, we've hung 20 years of our life on that verse. Oh, yeah, hearts of the fathers to the children. Yeah, it's going to be great. We love that, but we lose the context of it because in the verse before that, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In other words, that turning of the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers comes in conjunction with the season of the great day of the Lord. Now, if there is a written piece of work of any kind, a book, a pamphlet, a website, whatever, more than any academic or fan or casual reader, the author of a written piece has the final word on what that means, right? That's the question before our U.S. Supreme Court all the time. What did they mean when they wrote the Constitution? The author has the final word. That father-child movement of reconciliation is placed by the author of Scripture right up against the idea of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Author gets final word on, on the context here. It's a prominent phrase and a prominent idea we see all through the Bible. It's mentioned over a hundred times. And on that day, ultimately, he will rule from Jerusalem. But the days of transition between this age and that are great and terrible. Great in a positive way for some, terrible or awesome for others. Something we don't like to recognize is that when things are going to get better or have gotten better in our lives, we often recognize that they had to get worse before they got better. The Jews experienced that in the way of Egypt as word got out that Moses wanted to set them free. Suddenly, their taskmasters crack down on them in an event that we joke around our house, we call more bricks, less straw. Like, it was bad. They were all captive. 
But suddenly, in Exodus 5.11, they got the word from their taskmasters. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. Now we need you to make more bricks, and we're not even going to give you the supplies to do it. Even though that matches our experience, the idea that freedom is coming, but the struggle is here, and there will be struggle to get it, that idea is not popular. But if I only tell you about coming freedom and I don't tell you about a coming struggle, I'm not shepherding you, I'm fleecing you. I want you to understand freedom is coming, but so is struggle. And I take that responsibility really seriously because what I don't want you to do is sit through whatever this is and go, yeah, I I didn't see that coming. There is a day coming in your lifetime when you will face adversity, perhaps on the global level, definitely on the personal level, and this is what I want you to remember. The Lord brings us out of captivity, but he does it by bringing us through difficulties rather than just delivering us out of them. And those difficulties to come are not all just localized in our life or our community. Trouble is coming to the earth on a level that will make the plagues of Egypt look like road signs about what was going to come. You're like, Randy, are you really going around to preach on the end of the age? It's like the third time since Christmas. That's actually true. It is probably at least the third time since Christmas. This is how I look at it. I consider myself before the Lord responsible for you. And you you go, I've never looked at you that way. That's how I feel. Okay? And understanding that the transition into the next age will be either the ultimate positive or negative experience of your life. And this is only the third time I've talked about it since Christmas. Like, this is how important this is. And I know you're like, can you give me three tips about raising my kids? Yeah, maybe not. But I can tell you this, trouble is coming. And if you are not prepared for it, The trouble you're encountering right now is nothing compared to what you're going to encounter. The prophets had a phrase for it. They said, who can endure the day of the Lord? I mean, they're looking forward and seeing it and going, whoa, how are they going to stand in this? We are racing towards the time of trial and tribulation, some described in the Bible, some that aren't even mentioned, that will be the most difficult conundrums that any culture in human history has ever faced. Not just a multitude of severe problems, but problems our grandparents never thought of. Just a couple of examples. You're like, how could it be so different? My grandparents lived in a sod house and and they had a hard life. How could what we face be difficult? Because society is changing so fast. We're creating problems we never even thought of. Just two very quickly. The idea of artificial intelligence. You may hear it called machine learning. It's the idea that a computer can perform tasks that normally would be assigned to a human being with visual perception, speech recognition, decision-making, translation between languages, that sort of thing. And the lowest beginning bar, we're just beginning to hear about now. It's just the very beginning. It's the idea called chat GTP. If you haven't tried it out, there's a a website you can go to, you can ask it a simple question, and it will form, in paragraph form, answers to your your questions. It's, to be quite honest, it's a very uh, 
sophisticated Google search right now as it goes and scans the, the web for information and compiles it. You can ask it for a recipe. You can ask it to tell you a story. You can ask it to write it a sermon. It's not a very good preacher, by the way. I'm not going to be replaced quite yet. But it, it sounds innocuous and it sounds simple. And right now it's a bit of a joke. But one of the co-founders of ChatGTP, okay, this is one of the guys who built the engine that, that runs the whole thing, is Elon Musk. PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX, every industry he's invested in heavily will use artificial intelligence to the nth degree. He recently told attendees of the World Government Summit in Dubai, this is the guy who built it, one of the biggest risks to the future of civilization is AI. Like, you would think he'd be a fan. He's saying it's one of the most dangerous things to come up with. Why? Because when we ascribe authority to the voice of a machine, we describe servanthood, we ascribe servanthood to humanity. N another example, and I hope this makes sense, because I, 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 we're hitting a bump here. Okay. This fall, Apple will roll out a feature to your iPhone. You won't have to ask for it. It'll just come. And that feature will, if you speak into it the correct number of sentences for about 15 minutes, it will be able to replicate your voice from texts, okay? So that you can text your friend and they can hear in your voice whatever you texted. Can anybody see how this goes wrong? First time your kid grabs your phone and texts you, mom said to stop and get ice cream, you know? Or whatever, and they, you hear in your voice, you know, so, oh, that's, that's kind of cute. What happens when somebody accesses this technology and uses it to get you to say things that you never would have possibly said? And then wants to sell you the recordings back. You understand? When we ascribe authority in a vague way to machines, it, that's scary. Okay, so that's the idea of redefining authority, because really, what is the authority if you don't know who's speaking? The second area, again, I told you this is the sermon about everything, is uh, the idea of, uh, of the trans movement in our nation redefining the concept of identity. Even talking about it makes some of you nervous. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I'm just underscoring how rapidly things are changing and how rapidly they are changing, particularly among young people. And why are you even talking about this, Randy? Because you are now being discipled about how you think about this. The world is talking about it like crazy. You can't get 10 minutes into a newscast without it being talked about. So your thoughts are going to be formed by somebody. Okay, so that's why we're talking about this here. Unless you think I'm drifting into, you know, hardcore, conservative, whatever, let me uh, give you a quote from the UCA, uh, UCLA School of Law. This is not a right-wing organization, okay? The UCLA School of Law, probably the other opposite. They just issued a report last year that said, from extensive testing among 13 to 17-year-olds and 17 to 24-year-olds, the number of young people identifying as trans has doubled in five years has not changed among any other age groups but among young people it has doubled in five years and yet we're told there's no targeting and there's no grooming of young people into this idea that they might not be who God has made them to be there's a lot to be said here but for time's sake the point I'm making is your grandparents problems will not be your problems and your problems will not be the ones your grandparents faced
And as we are making war as a culture on the idea of authority and identity, we are so close to a replay of the very first scene in the grand play of the ages where Satan said, did God really say? And we don't know. Because we don't know who's saying what. A generation conditioned by AI to attribute authority to a machine and conditioned by culture to question their very existence is on a collision course with disaster and confusion. It's so bad, or it will be so bad, that Matthew 24, 22 says, if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. Some people go, why is he let it go on and on? No, he actually cuts it off, lest everyone perish. Jesus knew that at this age, the transition from one to the next and all that it would entail, he describes it a little bit. He says that a key indicator of the approach of the end of the age will be a preoccupation with our current selves. What is now, what is current, what is us. Luke 21, 34 to 36. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will, become, it will come on all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying you might have strength to escape these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Different ages have thought about time a little differently. At some point in history, there's been an emphasis on our ancestors or our forefathers and living up to their expectations. In recent decades, it's been more thoughts about the future. If you grew up at the same time I grew up, you watched the Jetsons. You're wondering where your self-cleaning kitchen is. We were always thinking about the future. But we live in an age when we are consumed with ourselves and now. It is the most curious, narcissistic time in history where our greatest interest is our current situation and ourselves. Grab the average 16 or 17-year-old's phone. Most of the pictures on that phone are of the 16 or 17-year-old that owns the phone. And it's not just young people. We are so consumed with... I read an article earlier this week about a guy saying he, he was on his way to a concert with four friends. They were in a, in a big Uber, and he said, we, have, we had planned to do this for six months in advance. We were so excited. We're on our way to the concert, and he said, I looked around the Uber, and every one of us was on our phone scrolling through social media. He said, we planned on celebrating this and being together. We could have enjoyed ourselves and, and invested in the relationship, and every one of us is scrolling on media that will actually even disappear within 24 hours. We're so consumed with the moment. And Jesus is saying, Use this moment to think about the future. Use this moment to prepare your hearts for where this is going. We worship the now. We have no regard for the future. And Jesus warned us of living with no regard for those days. For it will come upon those who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake. Stay awake. Because the Son of Man is coming. When that happens, the very things that we have always taken for granted will be shaken at a level that we cannot imagine. I can say that a hundred times, and when it happens, we will still go, I didn't imagine. Because you can't imagine what you can't imagine. 
But we all know we've seen things that have shocked people, and even at the, at the dumb level. You know, you go back to 2005, walk into a business room where everybody's got a BlackBerry on their hand, and tell those people in 15 years you won't be able to buy a working BlackBerry. They'd have thrown your BlackBerry at you. They wouldn't, you know, nobody, go, go to 2007. Nobody who owned a house in 2007 thought for a second the value of what was going to happen to their house. Couldn't see it coming. No one who had deposits in Silicon Valley or First Republic Bank just a few weeks ago saw that coming. So there's actually precedent for things happening that we don't imagine, and yet we think that we're going to see it coming. There are shakings that are coming, and it will happen to reveal what cannot be shaken in your lives. See, because you're attached to some things that aren't going to stand. You're vested in some stuff that's going to fall. But yet there are things in your heart that will stand. And when things shake, it will be to reveal what those things are. I want to ask if Zion would come up for a moment as we get ready to close. Humanity, people like us, have a history of fully believing in things and then being shocked beyond belief when they change. What's that mean? It means systems, jobs, markets that we are confident in will not last forever. In fact, the Lord says there is a shaking that is coming to the earth and it is not random. It is intentional to reveal what will last. Our responses to God and his people, the Jews, will be one of the things that will be revealed in that season of shaking. I want you to be less worried about what's going to shake and more consumed with what's going to stand. Watched the documentary this week on Michael J. Fox. And, uh, you know, I'm of the age that he was a couple of years older than me. And so I kind of, like through high school and college, just kind of grew up with him, a big part of the media. You know, at one point, he had a number one TV show and the number one and number two movie on at the same time. Like he was, you know, as he says in the, in the documentary, he's like, at one point, I was bigger than breakfast cereal. At 29, he was diagnosed with um, Parkinson's. Most people with Parkinson's never diagnose Parkinson's until their 60s. But he's diagnosed with Parkinson's and in the flurry of his career, his physical body is breaking down. To the point where, at about t the 10 year mark, he had to actually come out and announce, yes, I do have Parkinson's, I'm, I'm dealing with it. And this documentary is the story of his life. And at times it's hard to watch, because this young guy who is just so vibrant, and he still, he looks young, he's, he's even, even with the, his body being ravaged, he doesn't look his age. But he shakes through the entire interview. And he talks about how this shaking in some way has become a blessing. And he says this, I couldn't be still in my life. I couldn't be present in my life until this thing happened that made me present in every moment because it was shaking me awake. And he talks about his relationship with his children and his family. That this shaking has taught him the value. I don't want to wait until everything is shaking to realize what won't shake. 
This morning, I'm going to ask you if you'd stand. Hebrews 12, 28, 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I never ask you to say anything, but I'm going to. Say, cannot be shaken. Like, I want that in your vocabulary, okay? That cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's coming a shaking to the earth, but there is something that cannot be shaken, and I want to be all about that. So, Father, this morning, as a church family, understanding just a little bit of what is coming to the earth, we ask that we would hold fast to that which will not shake. We ask that we would hold fast to your son Jesus, to the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, to your calling on our lives. And then in seasons of shaking, we would hold on tight and be fully prepared. Let's just take a moment and worship. Make this song your commitment to hold fast.
there is none like you, faithful and true, solid to the end. This morning, if you are undergoing shakings already in your life, we want to pray for you. Right now, if you're in a season, I'm just going to do this while we have the whole body together. You're in a season where you you didn't see this coming. You're in a place you just didn't see coming. And things are shaking. If you just raise your hand, you don't need to share what it is with anybody, but we want to pray for you. Right now, here, up there, up in the corner. Keep your hands up if you would. All right, right now, if somebody can gather around them, uh, let's just say, tell you what, don't ask questions. They can share with you later if, if, if they would like, but sometimes it's just enough to ask, okay? We want to gather around people. We want to pray that the Lord would undergird them, and they would lean on that which does not shake. Somebody else would gather around. Debbie here needs someone. Anybody else? Ted? So, Father, right now we ask that you would undergird our friends as we face shakings on the earth that we just didn't see coming, things in our life we didn't anticipate. If you're gathered around people there right now, just begin to pray for them.
Father, I speak a blessing over our church family. Give us great wisdom in coming days to live up to the calling you've placed on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're still praying with someone and want to continue, feel free. If you'd like to stay, you're able to do that. If you need to go, we understand. God bless you. Have a great weekend. Thank you.